This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. When we think of symbols of American modernity, you might think of the mechanized automobile, new techniques in food preservation, and explosive advances in medical research. Those are just a few things that come to mind. But historian Janet Golden thinks a little differently. She says that babies were what pushed us into the modern age. How's that? Well, it starts because babies push their families and the government to accommodate their needs and to change their practices. Let me give you an example. Recognition of cod liver oil as a preventative for the disease rickets led government agencies to start giving it away. Parents of limited means could buy it, and cod liver oil producers were able to advertise it widely. That understanding of a new biomedical idea that rickets and perhaps other ailments could be prevented spurred both health consumerism and the belief that government agencies should provide help in the form of information and funding for direct services. Those were ideas that didn't exist before we really started thinking about babies in different ways. But besides clearing the path for broad acceptance of new approaches to scientific research, babies also made us think more about gender roles, social work, developmental psychology, and a lot more. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start talking about how babies have made us modern when positive parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Careful at the party, hon. Remember what we talked about? I know, Mom. No alcohol, right? Yeah, I know. Honey, seriously, I know you're in high school now, but you're still too young to drink. And you're still my daughter. I don't want anything happening to you. I know. I know. Really? Drinking is different with kids. You're still growing. You're still developing. It messes with your judgment. I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all. Before they're teens. And you could do things that... Honey, trust me, if you drink, you could do things you don't really want to do that I don't want you to do. Yeah, Mom, I know. Listen, I'm just trying to protect you, all right? If you're a grown woman, it's different, but you're not. I know, okay? I know. Start talking before they start drinking, and keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Janet Golden, who's the author of Babies Made Us Modern, How Infants Brought America into the 20th Century. Janet, thanks very much. Thank you. There is an intriguing title for you, How Infants Brought Us into the 20th Century. You could say, well, infants brought us into the 19th century and the 12th century and the 10th century B.C. How How is the 21st century or the 20th century different than previous influences of of infants on us? Well, I think the 20th century is different for several reasons. One is that's the century where we really saw a dramatic decline in infant mortality. It began in the middle of the 19th century, but it really dropped in the 20th, along with the birth rate. So there were a lot of infants, but fewer than their, the birth rate was lower, so there were fewer of them being born. 
and babies really connected what I would call ordinary Americans to all sorts of new things in the 20th century, consumer culture, uh, the ideas that come out of infant development and psychology. Um, and they also uh, kept their family rooted in, in older traditions as these new things came along and as modernization came along. So they're really instrumental historical actors, and we don't pay attention to them in that way. We tend to count them. Uh, we tend to try and help them survive and be healthy. But we don't think about how they're changing our lives except as individual parents and relatives. Do you think that some of it is the just the way that we started treating them differently? I mean, I think you know our our grandparents of the babies were not really treated with any specialness except for the, you know, we knew that they were fragile, but they were treated much more like little people as opposed to later on in perhaps the twentieth century you're talking about when we discovered that they were actually not like little people, they were just very different, and that there's a lot of different things that you need to do. I don't know that we treated them like little people, but little we didn't try. We didn't try as much, I think, to figure out how they were developing uh, in ways that we couldn't know about yet. You know, how they were responding to language, how they were responding to maybe structured days or sleep or things like that. We just didn't think about that as much because we were focused on can we help them to survive. Uh, but in the 20th century, we really begin to sort of look at them with new eyes and say, gee, they're, they're, they're following us with their eyes, or they're crawling towards us, or they like to be hugged, or they like to be rocked. Um, but I will say that one of the interesting things that I found in my research is that when sociologists, anthropologists, folklorists would go out into rural communities, they would always kind of uh, see that that what we'll call more traditional families were always carrying their babies around, uh, nursing them a lot longer, let, you know, being more, I guess we would say, protective and loving than parents who were being taught by some of the new ideas to, you know, put their babies on rigid schedules. And there used to be uh, people used to have, give babies these bibs that said, do not kiss me because they were so afraid of germs. So I think a lot of traditional families uh, really uh, did what we would call now modern parenting, but never got credit for it because at the time they were seen as backward. So that's, mm. I find that really interesting. It's hard to imagine a time when parents were told, don't kiss your baby, it'll give them germs, make sure they get a healthy tan, they should always be allowed to cry because that will develop their lungs. And uh, I don't think we follow too much of that anymore. No, we certainly don't. And, and that sounds like it was science driving things in a, a way that we find out much later, similarly to, to the, the science that was telling women they shouldn't breastfeed or the science that was telling people that, like, like my mother, that they had to be knocked out before childbirth and uh, what was it, twilight sleep is what it was called, I think. Um, right. That, that, you know, so that science heading in what it thought was a good, well-intentioned direction that turns out not to have been. That's true. And and all of those things that I mentioned do have some science behind them. In other words, the biggest killer of the 19th century was tuberculosis. So if you thought a baby crying could develop its lungs and maybe prevent it later on from having a dread disease, that yeah. made sense. 
People were afraid of rickets, so getting a healthy tan seemed like a, a sensible way to prevent that. Yeah, it's no. I mean, it's one of these things you can look back and you can say, "Oh, these idiots," but <laughs> it was it was well intentioned. I think. I mean, very very little of it was was not well intentioned. But you know, now we know that the, perhaps a better way for an infant to build up an immune system is to be exposed to things. And there's a lot of information now that's coming out about the anti antibacterial soaps and things like that, and how those are actually hurting and how. Animal people who spend or babies who spend time with animals are are less likely to be allergic and you know, all all sorts of stuff and that that's uh, you know you learn right. later on and you say wow that's a whole different way of looking at the world. Yeah, well, ba- you know, we we spend a lot of time rightfully trying to protect our babies from deadly bacteria and deadly germs, and it took a long time to realize that they're not all dangerous or bad for us. Uh, I will say in, the, in, in decades ago, of course, when more people grew up around animals, you get, I read, read a lot of baby books to write this book, and babies were out there crawling around with the dogs and the chickens and got exposed to a lot of things that probably in the long run were good for them. Yeah, exactly. And, and that there were finding that, yeah, that was right, exactly what you said about the more traditional parents. It's the, the kids who grew up on farms were healthier than kids who grew up without them. So you talk in the book about economics and social welfare and the value of babies. Talk about that a little bit. Where where are you going with that idea? Well, um, I think that we had an interesting time in America beginning uh, just before World War I, where we really had federal government investment in infants and children with the Children's Bureau. We really said if we invest in our children, we're creating our, our future soldiers, our future mothers, our future healthy citizens. And that was an idea that people really embraced. I think I mentioned in the book that the Children's Bureau got about a quarter million letters every year asking for advice about how to raise children. People wow. looked to Uncle Sam for really good advice. Um, and that, that was an idea that faded away for a lot of reasons. One is as the infant mortality rate fell, we worried a lot less. And secondly, I would say after World War II, we kind of turned to a privatized parenting where we didn't want too many experts or the government telling us what to do. Um, but we really had a real social investment in children. In the midst of World War I, the, uh, a part of the War Department, as it was then called, and all these nationwide women's organizations got together and had a children's year, 1918, Save 100,000 Babies was their motto. And they were measuring and weighing kids and going into schools and giving out pamphlets and healthy information. And then, again, for a time in the 20s, um, the Children's Bureau was funding a lot of programs under Shepherd Towner Act to uh, provide rural community cities with um, baby health stations, baby welfare stations. Uh, so we could check in on kids and see who needed to be referred to the doctor. So people didn't have a big fear of government in interfering with uh, children or child raising. They really embraced it. Do you think that there's a role for government to play now? Well, I think, t- you know, I did not look in the book at the modern period, but I think that, yes, there is insofar as public health uh, has to be a big government project as well as a state and local project. But we do, we do want to have 
ways of combating epidemics, ways of responding to disasters that lead to health problems. So, yes, I think that there is a role for government right there, just as one example. I don't know that people want to get advice pamphlets from the government or advice from the government the way they once did, um, but I don't think that they mind having government-funded community health centers in their communities where they can take their kids for inoculations as they get ready for school or if they have a, a health crisis, something like that. So times have changed, certainly. I don't think we want uh, the same kind of um, support from the Children's Bureau that we once had. But I think that there's still a role for government at different levels, certainly in, in uh, protecting the public's health, and that does mean infant health. Talking with Janet Golden, who's the author of Babies Made Us Modern, How Infants Brought America into the 20th Century. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Janet Golden about babies and modernity and the 20th century. <laughs> You must be your fairy godmother. Yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Many parents miss the important step of booster seats. Maybe you better explain things to him. Booster seats raise your child up so that a safety belt designed for adults will fit and protect them properly. Oh. That does make a difference. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number. And get your little pumpkin there safely <laughs> in a booster seat. Hop in, my dear. Oh, thank you. And like Cinderella, you can live happily ever after. It's like a dream. A wonderful dream come true. For more information, visit BoosterSeat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Ever notice when you have a baby... Everyone seems to give you advice. From your mother-in-law, don't you know you can't take that baby out in the rain today? And where is her hat? To your own parents. You should take the baby outside every day, even in the rain. To your friends. You have got to get this diaper cream. It is so much better than the one you've been using. When it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, she gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. Honey, I totally support you getting the baby vaccinated, but really, shouldn't you put the baby's hat back on? A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Janet Golden, who's the author of Babies Made Us Modern, How Infants Brought America into the 20th Century. I want to talk about a, a little bit the, I guess, well, you mentioned about birth rates and also life expectancy. And talk about some of the statistics, because I think that it would be rather jarring to people who are, are younger to think back to a time when the, the adult lifespan was in the 40s and when a large number, I mean, a, a scary large number of children were, were dying under the age of five years old uh, compared to what we have now. That is right. Uh, we had a very high infant mortality rate. We had a very high young child mortality rate. So I begin my book 
in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, where they, we had the Trans-Mississippi Exposition, a kind of World's Fair in 1898. And uh, in 1910, a little after that, uh, the infant mortality rate in Omaha was 140 per 1,000. Oh, my goodness. So that's, that's an incredible death rate. Now, I will say that, of course, has fallen tremendously. There are racial differences in the death rate. But one thing that persists from then till now is so many of our infant deaths are in the first month of life, that perinatal period. Right. And so many infant deaths are related then as now to prematurity. So that's a problem where we do want our scientists and our community health experts really trying to attack that problem because that that has remained a serious one here and around the world. Well, you know, that's an area right there where government has a role to play, I think. Uh, I mean, I've written quite a bit about this in the the books that I've done for for dads about just changing sleeping positions when they change the recommendations. And I remember this, my, my older kids were born in the era when you put babies down to sleep on their face. Right. And and now the the youngest one was born in an era where you put them down on their back, and there's no question. I mean, the 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 rate of of sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS, one of the biggest killers of kids in the early early months, went down by half. And you know, for the government to get the word out through hospitals or doctors or however else they do that through public affairs or public uh, service announcements, to let people know that's where the science comes in, and and you got to pay attention to this stuff. And that's been great. I know that you've talked about text for baby, where the government will send you little texts a couple times a week when you're pregnant and then have a yeah, new baby. Exactly. Just simple advice. And that's really getting us back to uh, maybe where we were at the beginning of the 20th century, where the government put out, we call it Uncle Sam's bestseller, a book called Infant Care, first published in 1914. It's the, the biggest selling, biggest distributed a government publication of all time. It's online really? now. Wow. It does get updated. Millions and millions sold. and mil- Well, actually not sold, but Probably sent away. away. And then yeah. whenever you'd have a new baby, a, a, you know, the, your congressperson or your senator would send you one. Uh, and the other great source of infant advice, believe it or not, was the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. Uh, when you well, bought insurance for your family, they sent you lots and lots of baby books, and they produced billions of them of health advice books and sent it off to families. So today we kind of get that in, through other social media than in the past, but a lot of it is the same idea, simple messages, easy to follow, based on what we believe to be the latest science, which, as we know, is not always the correct science. Right. Right. You know, one area I'm, I'm curious about, if you could talk a, a little bit about this, is, is that so much of the research that has been done on child development and on parental influence over children has to do with, it has to do with moms and very little with dads. And I'm wondering if you noticed that and if you noticed a time when that was questioned. I think it begins to be questioned, actually, uh, in the post-World War II later baby boom period when we have a feminist movement that really says, well, what about the dads? Uh, But early on when we start teaching infant development, psychology, child theory in in our schools and universities, we teach it to girls in home economics. Um, we teach it in times through Girl Scouts. We have an organization called Little Mothers League before that. 
that tries to take low-income girls and teach them how to care for their siblings, which they might have to do while mom's out at work. And we kind of ignore the, the boys who need the training very young and the men and the fathers. Um, and so that will come later on in the 20th century. That doesn't mean the men aren't involved. I try and show in my book that even though moms kept the most of the baby books and recorded things, the dads were writing plenty of letters about their children's and babies' development. The moms were complaining, oh, but, you know, dad's always on the floor playing with the baby. He doesn't want to come to dinner. Uh, uh, so there's a lot of parental involvement, but it's not because we're educating fathers and working on fathers to understand infant development and to be involved in, in that. That's kind of a shame, but I think yeah. we're correcting that. I'm, I'm working on that one, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. So how, how has our understanding or changing understanding of, of babies and our importance to them and their importance to us, how has that affected the world that we live in? Well, you know, that is a really tough question. I think that we now understand that babies don't have to be verbal to be learning and communicating with us, that their cries mean something, that their looking at us means something. Um, so I think that, that that's how that, that's changed in a way. But I think there's still a lot of mystery about what goes on in, in infants as their brains are developing and probably the best advice that, that people have always given and always practice is to just love your child and do your best by your child because you don't really know. You don't really know what are they thinking about, what do they want. You try and you, your best to see what they seem to be telling you and, and to respond to it. Yeah, but it's, it's, you're exactly right. We, we don't know where to go. So where, where do you think we do go from here? How do we continue to have a, a well-meaning and well-directed focus on babies because there's still plenty more to learn. There's still plenty more to learn. And, you know, I've often wondered and I've written about whether it's time to bring back the United States Children's Bureau to have a federal agency that's dedicated to all infants and children and that really helps to coordinate research about their needs, that really gets us to understand the disparities by race, by class, by gender that we can address through social programs and good social policies, um, whether it's figuring out what should infant daycare look like in our economy and how we support workers and infants, or whether it's um, what kind of scientific study should we be investigating. Is it... Um, rare diseases, or is it prematurity that's killing so many Americans? Um, we really kind of need a coordinated effort, I think, to think about infants and children. Um, but I don't think it's a bad idea to prioritize children in the 21st century, at the beginning decades of the yeah. 21st century, as we did at the beginning of the 20th century, because it certainly in the past has yielded a healthier, stronger society and healthier, happier families. Well, how do you keep politics out of it? That seems to be much more of a uniquely 21st century thing than a 20th century thing, because it sounds like people were going to the government for help, but now very few people would think of doing that. And, you know, so some of the research that comes out has a, a political tinge to it, and, and sometimes things are switched 180 degrees depending on, 
on social objections to certain kinds of things. I remember you know, you, every once in a while you'll see a study that says that uh, babies who grow up with uh, going to, to daycare very early are more likely to become serial killers or something like that. And then, <laughs> and then you'll have women's groups will complain saying, you're saying that we're bad moms. And then you'll have another study that comes out that says you know, babies who stay at home with their moms are better off. And, and you know, how do, how do you get the politics out? That's... Right. You know, that is a question I think about a lot. How do we reach a consensus that I think we all want our 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 youngest citizens, our future citizens to grow up in the best possible way? And I think we might all agree that we have to look to good quality data that answers important questions that we ask. But where does that break down? It breaks down over funding. It breaks down over prioritizing other things. Um, boy, if I had the answer to getting past some of our political debates that <laughs> that take us away from things I think everybody shares, um, I guess I'd run for office if I had that answer. <laughs> Janet Golden's the author of Babies Made Us Modern, How Infants Brought America into the 20th Century. Janet, thanks so much. Thank you. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of 326 hands playing Mozart. This is the sound of 10,942 hands showing appreciation. 64 hands building a house for the homeless. 142 hands swimming a triathlon. 18 hands winning the big game. And this is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called hands-only CPR, and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. It's incredibly easy and effective. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. Find out more about this latest method of CPR at handsonlycpr.org. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment, and I want to continue what we started a few weeks ago about how to avoid the summer slide. We all know that over the summer, kids lose on average 30% of what they learned the previous school year. Keeping their minds active and engaged while they're on vacation will help them start the new school year ready to learn instead of having to spend the first few months of the year reviewing old materials. Here are some great activities, one that's academic and the rest a little less so, that will keep your children's minds sharp. The Beautiful Book of Exquisite Corpses by Gavin Edwards. With all the emphasis on science, technology, engineering, and math these days, people forget about the A for art in STEAM, which we prefer over the more traditional STEM. This book is designed to jumpstart those creative, artistic juices, and it delivers big time. Each page is divided into thirds. The top third has a partial drawing or a provocative phrase. For example, he pushed the truck's accelerator down as far as it would go, but the angry kittens kept gaining on him. You and a partner then tear a few pages out of the book, fold them along the dotted line so you can't see the drawing or the text, and then you shuffle them so you don't know which one you're getting, and then draw whatever you like. When you're done, fold the page again so neither of you can see what the other has done, swap those pages, and draw again. The result will be a wonderful artistic chimera. That's the mythical beast that had the head of a lion, body of a goat, and tail of a serpent. 
The book features art from famous illustrators, cartoonists, tattoo artists, and more, as well as text from just as famous rock stars, actors, TV writers, and others. It's for ages 10 and up. Costs about 17 bucks. You can get it on Amazon. Hoax Island, a fiendish puzzle adventure by Helen Friel and Ian Friel. Written and designed by a father-daughter team, this book is an escape-the-room type mystery in which you follow clues, decipher codes, solve puzzles, and analyze notes. The goal is to find Henry Hoax, who's gone missing, and save the marvelous amusement park that bears his name and happens to be filled with a variety of talking animals, including Rita the Anteater and Granville the Gorilla. And you want to keep that amusement park from being destroyed by dastardly developers. It's smart, challenging, thought-provoking, collaborative, and, most of all, lots of fun. It's for ages 7 and up. Costs about 20 bucks. You can get that on Amazon. Summer Brain Quest from Workman Publishing. This series of well-designed, educational, and engaging books will keep kids entertained all summer long. Each of the 15 volumes is filled with activities, games, and clever ways of reviewing concepts, introducing new ones, and just having fun, which, after all, is what's going to keep those kids coming back for more, right? What's especially nice about these books is that they're clearly labeled as being for adventures between grades X and Y, whatever they are. So you don't have to worry about whether a book that says first grade is for kids who just finished that grade or are starting it. Under $12 each, you can get them on Amazon. You can get a lot more reviews of toys and games and activities and other fantastic things to do with your kids to have all sorts of fun, whether it's for the summer or beyond, at our website, parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. Until then, I'm Armin Brock. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.